enjoy life a bit and, and don't put yourself under such stress and pressure. You know, if you've got that ambition, if you've got that motivation, you're going to be successful no matter what. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Rush Shaw, who is the founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. He originally founded Tech London Advocates, TLA, in 2013 to establish an independent voice for the technology sector which would focus on the private sector. Since then, he's been championing London as a global tech hub and campaigning to address some of the biggest issues facing tech companies in the UK, such as diversity, digital skills, immigration, infrastructure, and of course, access to funding. TLA is a network of more than 6,000 tech leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts in London, across the UK, and in over 50 countries worldwide. I actually joined Tech London Advocates myself a few years back, and it's been a great network to be a part of. Before starting TLA, Russ was previously the chairman of the marketing group of Great Britain, following senior positions at Skype, Telefonica, O2, and CEO of a later stage startup called Mobile Way. He's an active angel investor, venture investor, and has been a non-executive director of a number of high profile businesses, including Dialogue, Semiconductor, and Unwire. So Russ, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, good to be here, thanks Phil. Good to be here via Skype, yes. Um, so when you're at a WeWork event or a networking event, how do you introduce yourself? How do I introduce myself? I usually say um, I am Russ Shaw and the founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. Nice. Short and concise. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so we're going to get into... Usually, usually that generates a few questions, but that's usually... My, uh, my, my 10 second pitch. Your initial elevator pitch. Awesome. Yes. So I guess before we get into Tech London Advocates and what you're doing with that project, which is great. Sure. Um, how did you, you know, let's go back into the big early stages of your career. How did you get into the telecoms business? Yeah, it was, well, I guess it was almost a little bit of an accident. I had been in financial services for about, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And I just decided that I needed to have a complete change. And... Um, I was recruited, well, the company at the time was called MTL, they're now called Virgin Media, yeah. and the guy who was running it, Stephen Carter, uh, recruited me and said, I'd love you to run London and the Southeast for us. So, you know, never ran a broadband business or a, a mobile business, um, but, you know, he took a chance on me, and um, I really, really enjoyed it. It was like the company was going through some challenging times, mm. but um, it was uh, great to be part of it. Okay, interesting. And so you said you were in, you know, financial services before. So this is like two completely different industries. Like, did you have any kind of like reservations about joining? Well, I did. I mean, funny enough, I mean, if you step back and look at both consumer financial services and particularly kind of mobile and telecoms, both are about 
doing lots and lots and lots of transactions with customers. You know, mm-hmm. for telecoms, it's about you know, mobile calls, phone calls, you know, and, and for, you know, well, American Express and Charles Schwab, it's about charges, transactions, stock trades. So both businesses actually, funny enough, had certain things in common. And both industries at the time were really looking at how do you drive greater customer loyalty, focus on customer retention activities. So there were some interesting parallels, although, you know, I had to completely learn the network side of the telecoms business. And I'm, I'm not trained as an engineer. So um, that took a bit of time and effort. Interesting. And going back to your financial services role, I guess you were working in the marketing department, right? Yeah, so I had I had advertising, marketing, and brand management roles at American Express and at Charles Schwab. Um, but when I moved into telecoms, I not only kind of changed interest industries, I kind of moved into more of what I would describe as a general manager okay. role or a managing director role. So I had responsibility just not not for marketing, sales, but for operations, network, managing big teams. So it was it was it was a big leap into the unknown. Wow, and. Um- I guess, did that make you move away from like the marketing side of things or not be as involved as you used to be? Well, I had to, you know, when you're a general manager of the business, marketing is certainly one aspect of, of everything else that, that you're doing. So, of course, I was still involved in it, but I did have to step back and spend my time learning and focusing and understanding other operational disciplines. But actually, that was good because it had... It, it gave me a greater appreciation for the impact that the marketing function can have on all other aspects of a, of a business. Right. And, you know, just for the listeners out there that don't know, so when we're referring to your telecoms stint, you were actually at one of the largest telecommunications companies in the world, Telefonica. And then after that, you kind of moved into a role at Skype. Yeah, so I will actually, I, um, I, I ran a, I was a CEO of a later stage startup. I went to work for O2. And, and we were acquired by Telefonica, so I worked for a very large telecoms company. Right. And then I worked. I went to work for Skype to run, well, to set up a mobile division to put Skype on mobile devices and to run Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Yes. So I really wanted to dig into this role here at Skype. So, so what was it like okay. working at Skype? What was it like working at Skype? It was very fun. I mean, it was it was it was fascinating because. It was a global business and a global brand that millions and millions of people used all the time to communicate. But at the same time, the business still very much had the feel of a startup. I can't remember what employee number I was, but it was kind of in the in the in the hundreds, if you will. So it wasn't a very big organization. Um, so you had the benefit of working for a globally admired and respected brand, but you're still working in a in a startup and having come from. O2 and particularly Telefonica, which were very large corporate environments, yeah. to suddenly go back into more of a startup environment initially was a bit of a shock to the system, but it was also very liberating and very refreshing. I can imagine. And I guess at that point, were you still quite heavily involved with product at all? Yeah, no, I was involved with, with product and I had I, I hired product managers as we were setting up the mobile division within Skype, um, we did need to have people who had good product and product management skills, but who really also understood the mobile side of things. I mean, prior to me coming in, Skype was basically only used as a desktop service. So Mm. 
getting the whole organization to understand and appreciate mobile as a as a product and as a delivery vehicle um, certainly required me to bring on people onto my team who really understood what product was was all about. So interesting. So I guess what so the time you joined Skype it was more of a like a scale up as opposed to a startup, let's say. No, it definitely was. So I was there from 2009 until we were acquired by Microsoft in 2011. So no, the business was definitely in more of that scaling up phase. It wasn't in the early days of Skype. Right. And what were some of the issues I guess you were facing at Skype and mobile? Well, I think some of the issues were, you know, we were, we were a global business. We had people spread around the world and, you know, I was there, I, I literally had four different chief executives that I worked for over a two and a half year period. Wow. So there was a lot of change. The owners had also changed. So when I came into the business, the business was fully owned by eBay. Mm. And then soon after I joined a private equity consortium acquired 70% of the business. So the, the owners of the business, if you will, were, were private equity firms, um, right. even though eBay was also still indirectly involved. And so one of the challenges was there was a lot of turmoil at the top, especially with CEOs changing quite rapidly. And so trying to build a corporate culture globally whilst the leadership was changing uh, on a semi-regular basis made it made it much more complicated and a and a trickier environment to work within mm. and was e i guess at the time was skype generating revenue yes no skype skype was was generating revenues um i can't remember i think the last year i was there i mean it was the company was on track to generate something like a billion dollars in revenues you know oh. and, and and a lot of that was driven by you know customers calling people who were not on skype Part of my role was to try and generate revenues from the mobile division. So we did um, carrier deals with Verizon Wireless, uh, with Three in the UK, with KDDI in Japan. So there were there were certainly ways and opportunities to monetize Skype. It wasn't easy, mm. um, but um, it was it was clearly something that we were all challenged to uh, to, to deal with. Right. And like you said, you left straight after the acquisition. Was there any particular reason for that? Um, after the acquisition, um, I'm sorry, did, uh, I, I left after the acquisition. Well, what happened was we were acquired by Microsoft and, and uh, a number of the senior management team decided to leave. I think many of us, including myself, decided that, um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily want to work for a big corporation mm. you know you know we were all very pleased that microsoft bought the business microsoft you know was certainly going to invest and have invested since then in the skype platform and building it out um but um having worked for large corporates and, and this was the third exit in my career so when i was running mobile way uh that business was acquired when i was the ceo when i was at o2 it was we were acquired by telefonica and then when Skype was acquired by Microsoft, I thought, wow, I've had three very good exits in my career. Um, somebody, somebody up above is watching over me, which is <laughs> wonderful. Um, I, I just thought, you know, I don't want to keep doing this full-time corporate gig. So I did, 
I did a lot of soul searching. You know,、mm. I was about to turn fifty, and I thought, look, I'm not going to do the full-time corporate experience anymore.、Um, but I'm not done with my career, and、um, tech, the technology sector, has been very good to me. So I thought, how can I give back to the tech sector,、uh, still be engaged, still have a valuable role in what's going on, and and that's kind of where the The, the nuggets and the essence of of Tech London Advocates、um, was born was was as I was coming out of Skype. That was your third exit by the age of fifty. That that's amazing. First of all. But do you feel as though there's a lot of young people who would see that and be like, "Oh, you know, I want it now." You know, like I mean, how old were you when you had your first exit?、Um, I think when I was running Mobileway, how old was I? That was back in two thousand and two thousand and five. So I was in my early forties. So that was my first one, and then、uh, Telefunken acquiring O two. I was in my kind of middle to late forties, and then. Microsoft buying Skype. I was around.、Uh, well, I was just coming up to my fiftieth birthday. Wow, that's amazing. And so, do you feel as though、yeah. Skype sold at the right time? Oh gosh, you know, I I don't think there's ever a, a, a right time per se. But I think the thing about Skype selling at that time, which was a positive thing,、um, was the company was indeed scaling, and it needed to have. More investment to build out its product portfolio、um, to move into more markets, and and so you know I think the timing certainly helped the company in terms of being part of Microsoft, where Microsoft had much deeper pockets to invest in the customer experience and the product portfolio. So I actually think that was you know in terms of Skype's time horizon, I actually think it was a good move and.、Um, It was very good to have a bigger organization like Microsoft be able to invest behind many of the things that were on the Skype roadmap that we just couldn't do、um, as, a, as a standalone business. Right, and do you think Skype is where it should be at this point?、Um, having been around for so long, you know, Microsoft kind of has a reputation for. You know, killing brands once they've been acquired. Do you feel as though my, <laughs> do you feel as though Skype yeah, is where it should be? Well, it was very interesting because when when we were being acquired at the time, Steve Ballmer was the was the president of Microsoft, and and he said, you know, he said, I promise not to do to Skype what we've done to some of our other acquisitions. They were very open and and forthcoming about their ability to acquire and integrate companies. And what they did, which I thought was really smart, is they kept, and this was after I left, they kept Skype as a standalone division. So they didn't dismantle it, they didn't break it into different groups. They just kept it as the Skype business unit within Microsoft. And I think that was a really smart thing to do.、Mm. Now, obviously, you know, they had Microsoft people working with them.、Yeah. And my understanding is, with their acquisition of LinkedIn, which has been more recent. They've done something similar, where they kept they've kept LinkedIn more as a standalone business unit,、right. so that they don't 
damage it and they, they can make sure that the business survives and thrives within a larger organization like Microsoft. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, Microsoft and Yahoo, you would have thought they would have been good at this whole acquisition thing by now, but they're, they're just they're just not good at it. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, Phil, I think most large organizations are not very good at acquiring businesses and integrating them. Mm. I think of, the, of, of some of these big technology companies, my sense is that Cisco has a pretty good track record of doing that. Right. Um, they've learned and they get the balance right, but... Many other big organizations, I think, really, really struggle when they try and acquire companies. I mean, actually, I just, you know, Google seems to have a good, uh, good track record. Yeah, Google. You know, Facebook and some of their 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 acquisitions have have, have integrated well, but most large organizations, I think, really struggle with that. No, it's so true, and I guess um, so. You've had the best of both worlds, so to speak. You've worked in corporate. You've worked in scale up. What are some of the major differences you saw when you were working at Skype compared to that of Telefonica, for example? Yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, when you're in a, in a smaller business in an organization like Skype, you don't have lots of resources at your disposal. Mm. You know, you have to roll up your sleeves and, and get stuff done yourself, and, and, and that's part of the experience. Um, the flip side is, you know, you're much more focused and responsible for the decision. Um, you know, there's not the corporate bureaucracy that you have in a much larger organization. You know, the, the, the organizational politics that you can experience in very large organizations are just not there. So, you know, you see the double-edged sword. I can think, well, I've got to do some of these other things that I haven't had to do myself for a while because I've been in a large corporate environment. But the flip side was, you know, I was empowered just to get on with it and to deliver on my goals and objectives and, and what I signed up to do. And I, I really found that very refreshing. Mm, so good. And I guess as your title was like innovator at some of these larger institutions, did you find it hard to innovate in some of these places? It, it was hard to innovate. Um, when, I, when I was the global innovation director for Telefonica, I mean, the thing that they did which was great, was they kind of gave me a clean sheet of paper and said, you know, design what you think should be the right innovation agenda for the company. So I kind of broke that down into three components. One was about investing in startups, but only investing in startups where I had sponsorship from a particular operating business within the company. Mm. The other was about setting up incubators in the operating businesses because the operating businesses, they'd have budget changes, they'd have organizational changes all the time. And so if you're trying to build something from scratch, it was really hard for the people in the operating businesses to do that. So I would come in and say, let's, let's create uh, an initiative where we're incubating your idea or your new product or your new service. And my commitment is I'm going to come in and help you fund it. In exchange, you need to commit to me that you're not going to change your budget. You're not going to change your headcount mm. if your organization is doing that. And that was a good balance and a good win-win. And I think some of those seedlings that I planted then eventually led to Waira, which is you know now across Europe and across Latin America. So yeah. I think the organization learned a lot. And the third was about how do you build a community? I called it Ambassadors for Innovation. How do you build a community of people who really want to drive 
innovation and be passionate about it. And so that was really exciting. I traveled the world and I'd meet these great people who wanted to be part of this initiative. You know, I also met people who were incredibly risk averse. You didn't want to just shake the apple tree, if you will. Mm, mm. And so it was just, it was part of the journey I was on was finding about who could I work with? Who were the people who really wanted to drive innovation and work with them? And those who didn't want to do it or weren't comfortable doing it, well, that was okay too. I wouldn't necessarily interface with them. So that was, that was a good learning experience for me. Interesting. And I guess from your time working with, you know, these huge corporations like Telefonica and American Express, um, what can you take from those experiences and what can be applied to startups from like a business perspective, yeah. marketing perspective? Sure. I think, I think some of the things that I took, you know, particularly from my days at American Express, I thought the company did a really good job at developing leadership within the organization. I participated in all types of leadership programs, how do you manage teams, how do you inspire teams, and I think large organizations do invest uh, a fair amount in their people, and some of those programs that I was on, I would bring those ideas and bring that approach into the startups I was working with. Mm. You know, a basic tool like making sure that every employee in the startup had some type of personal development or personal growth plan yeah. was really important. And, and many startups don't do that. So when you come in from a large corporate where you've done that, you can say, actually, let's sit, talk, sit down and talk about how do we develop your leadership skills. As the company grows in size and scale, how do you develop your own personal leadership so that you can grow and help to manage the business as it also increases in size? So I think those are some real positives that you know, coming from a bigger corporate environment, I could bring into a, a into a, a startup organization. And how early on do you think, you know, startups should be thinking about that for their employers? Is it employee number one? Is it employee number 10, 20? Like, when can this, when do you think a CEO or a founder should start implementing those type of things? It, you know, Phil, my philosophy in life has always been, it starts at the top. So mm. when you're employee number one, you need to start thinking about it need to start thinking about the culture of the company that you're trying to build, even if it's only five or ten people, because, you know, if you get on that growth trajectory, and look, there are some great examples all around us, look at what ha what's happening at Uber at the moment, yeah. it starts at the top, and as much as many of us would love to see somebody like Travis succeed, you know, his leadership style, you know, kind of then created a culture which was simply unsustainable for the size of the organization yeah. that it's become. So it starts right from day one. And whoever is the founder or the entrepreneur setting up the business, you know, my advice is, look, think about the products, think about the technology, the engineering, but think about the company culture that you're creating and make sure you, you live those values. And if you get it right, it will help you on your growth trajectory. And if you get it wrong, you're going to have problems down the line. Yeah, so true. Very true. And I guess from a marketing perspective, you know, marketing is such a tough nut to crack. Why do you think so many startups fail at it? 
person should be employee number two? I, I say let's make that marketing person within the top five. So you've got product, you've got marketing, you've got engineering or, or technology, you've got finance, yeah. and you've got the CEO or the founder. So I would put that person in there very, very early. Interesting. That's just something that you just don't hear a lot of. In the startup world, you know, you're always everyone's always focusing yeah. on getting engineers or focusing on getting a product person, but marketing always seems to be like an afterthought for most startups. Well, it, it is because I think I think a lot of times that people, you know, running these businesses think, well, the product person and the product strategy and the product management team will be able to carry the business and see the business through. And we can think about the marketing and sales and PR side of this down the line. But I actually think if you're not in there with a good marketing function, yes, doing the tactical marketing thing, but to me, marketing also includes really understanding who your customer is, whether you're a B2B or a B2C business. And if you don't have that insight and knowledge, you're going to build your business and you're going to build your product essentially in the wrong way. Yeah, no, so true. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit now, and I want to get into TLA, Tech London Advocates. Yeah. So, when sure. did it start? Um, you mentioned that it kind of came out of your time once you had left Skype, but like, where did the, yeah. I guess, the initial concept come from? Yep. So, about nine to twelve months after I came out of Skype, I was invited to join what was called the Tech City Advisory Group. So, the 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 government at the time and, and an advisor to the Prime Minister, a guy called Rohan Silver, um, was rebranding what we were calling Silicon Roundabout or Old Street Roundabout. He said, we're going to call it Tech City, and they set up the Tech City investment organization, and myself and several others were invited in to be advisors, which was lovely. Right. Have these wonderful breakfasts at Downing Street, and <laughs> you, know, you would talk tech. And so I could see what the government was doing, and in parallel, I could see what our mayor of London at the time, Boris Johnson and City Hall was doing it. I thought, well, this is great. You've got government, you've got City Hall, all actively promoting tech. Where is the group of diverse leaders from the private sector who are ultimately going to build it? Mm. So where are the founders, the angels, but also the big corporates, the banks, the professional services from the private 
it, and I didn't see it. So that's where the idea came from, because my, my ultimate belief is that government can be an enabler, but the ultimate focus on building tech ecosystems comes from the, the founders, the ideas that the founders have, and the investors behind the founders to really make sure that ecosystems work. So that's where the idea came from, and um, it's kind of taken over my life. Wow, yeah. Um, so how big is TLA now? So I've been a member of TLA for, I think, just over a year. I was actually introduced because it's it's invite only, I, I believe. And it yeah. still is, right? Well, it's not, it, it is open and entirely inclusive, but the way you come in, as you were, Phil, was through a fellow advocate introducing you. So any advocate who's been introduced to me, I've never said no to. Right. But I ask advocates to introduce new advocates. I have, within Tech London Advocates, network effect. And if you think about how Skype has been built over the years, Skype was built on network effect. People yeah. saying, oh, download this app so I can connect with you. So you can see my, my Skype training coming through in TLA. So we now have, we're just about to approach 5,000 Tech London advocates, literally with every advocate having been introduced to me wow. individually from a fellow advocate who said, I'd love to bring this person into the group. And Nobody's ever been turned down. It's just the, the that personal introduction that I want people to have because this is not just you know another support group or somebody said, oh, I want to be on your mailing list. How do I get on it? Mm. We're not a mailing list. We are a network and a community coming together to help each other. So that's the whole premise behind the group. So there's about just about five thousand in, in the group in London, across the UK, and we have. Tech London advocates in over fifty countries around the world now. Yeah, it's a it's a great network to be a part of. Seriously, um, and I, what's the I guess what's the vision for TLA? Yeah, I think well, I set this up when I was when I was fifty, and I said I want London to be known as a place where Yeah. 
Now, and I definitely felt the, the benefits of that. I mean, when I came over to New York and I reached out to you, you introduced me to someone at London and Partners that was based over here, which I managed to connect with. And, you know, they've been great um, just to like get plugged in in the network over here and understand the landscape. So, yeah, like I said, this is a great initiative. And everyone listening, if you're not in, involved already, hit me up and I can introduce you to us. <laughs> Awesome. Also, also, I wanted to ask you, so you are very responsive on email. Is that you every time? I mean, I've never met anyone who is as busy as you, but yet so responsive on email. It's actually incredible. <laughs> it, it, it is me. I, I, and, and, and sometimes to the chagrin of, of my wife, who does struggle with my, my email addiction, I have a philosophy of, you know, if you're a connector, which I am, and somebody called me a connector-in-chief, you have to respond, and you have to respond relatively quickly. So I, I, I tap into my email many times during the day, and my, my personal ambition is I do try and clear my inbox on a daily basis so that, you know, if we're there to help people, to connect people, to make introductions, I feel very passionate that it needs to happen very speedily. Uh, and, and that's, I think, part of the ethos of the group is I see a great level of responsiveness from the advocates group um, and maybe that's something that they, they take from, from from the leader as well which I, I, I love seeing. Yeah definitely. Um, I wanted to just go back to something that you mentioned a few moments ago just we just need to work towards wrapping up now. Um, you know you said you've yeah. set yourself another goal to reach by the time you're 60 um, you said you exited Skype, which was your third exit by the time you were 50, and your first one was at the age of 40. You know, yep. millennials these days were very impatient. Um, what do you say to the young guy, like myself, actually, who, you know, I'm 27 years old and I feel as though, you know, I haven't had an exit yet, so I've failed at life. Um, you know, it, it's so, it, it, I don't know, we, we're just very impatient and we want everything yesterday. Like, what's your advice to people who are, like, in a rush right now? Yeah, well, I mean, when I was your age, I was I was impatient, but I wasn't necessarily impatient about getting an exit. I was impatient about moving up in the company and getting that next uh, more senior position. And it's you know, it's one of those things when when you're younger, you, you're, it's hard to understand and appreciate. You know, now with the with the, with the benefit of many years of wisdom and lots of gray or, or silver hair, um, I think people look. You're going to be working for, for, for many, many years ahead. And, you know, build up your experience base. You know, do things and try things that you might not normally do. Don't, don't think you're going to get that first exit. You might fail a few times um, on this journey. I was fortunate. My first CEO position in a, in a later stage startup led, led to a successful exit. But, you know, I had some real disruptions in my career in terms of being made redundant, being restructured out of the position, you know, being told that the, the business is refocusing and it no, no longer needs my services. You know, these bumps have happened along the way and mm. they're, they're painful when you go through them. But, but my advice to you and to, and to your listeners is, look, when those things happen, when you're frustrated or when you don't get what you want or if you've hit a failure, 
you know, it's hard when you're going through it, but you will get through it. You will get to the other side of it, and you're going to look back on it and say, I learned something from that. I learned that I'm not going to do this again, or next time I'm going in this situation, I'm going to do something differently. And if you can do that, you will steadily build very, very successful careers. You know, some people get lucky by the time they're 30 and they can retire. Some people have to work until they're 70 or 75. Um, luck does play a part in it, but also hard work, experience. And also I say people, and obviously I wouldn't say this, but build great connections, build mm. great networks. You never know who you might need to call on or talk to or meet to help you do what you need to do. So, you know, 27, gosh. Okay, just working towards wrapping up now, what has been or who has been your biggest inspiration to date? favorite book today? <laughs> my favorite book. Um, I think uh, my favorite author, and there's probably a few books from the author, I, I love John Steinbeck. I love The Grapes of Wrath. I love East of Eden. Um, and I guess maybe those are great books from the 20th century where people went through adversity um, and, and tried to overcome them, didn't always succeed. But um, I love those stories where we read them today and think, wow, they're still very relevant today, even though they happened maybe 80, 90, 100 years ago. Right. 
And finally, um, you kind of gave some great advice a moment ago, but what's the one piece of advice you have for, I guess, startup founders right now? Yeah, I would say, listen. Listen to people around you. Listen to your investors. Listen to your team. Listen to your advisors. I think some of the most skillful people I've met over the years who have run good startups and scale-ups and have success have taken on board great feedback and have listened. They've done things, they've made statements, but they listen and they reflect. And sometimes I think collectively as a whole, some of the, you know, we, we don't listen enough as we should. And listening is, is such an underrated skill for people to have. But that would be my one, one piece of advice. Listen and listen well. That's great. That's good advice. Um, Russ, where can people find you if they want to be in contact with you? Yes, you can go onto the Tech London Advocates website. It's techlondonadvocates.org.uk and, um, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Russ Shaw Watts. Awesome. Those are the three vehicles. Thank you so much, Russ, for coming on the show. This was great. Thank you so much. All right, cheers. Massive thank you to Russ again for coming on the show and dropping some great knowledge and insights, especially giving us some insight into what corporate life was like. Um, it sounds as though Russ didn't hate it the whole time uh, which is really good and refreshing to hear because sometimes you just hear about entrepreneurs saying oh I hated my 9 to 5 but this was actually really refreshing to hear someone talk about their experiences and how it's had a positive impact on their, their future going forward so that's great. Um, as I said earlier in the show, um, TLA are doing some amazing work. Like I said, I'm also a member um, and I've received a lot of value from the network. So if you can, um, it's invite only. So um, if you want to be involved in TLA, drop me a line or uh, tweet me at Philip Kasumu and I can make an introduction to Russ. As always, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way guys all right until next time keep grinding